0: this morning Daniel five Daniel five starting at verse one Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand verse two while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which notice which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had, notice past tense, the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's armies had earlier destroyed that Jewish temple, so at this point it doesn't exist. That the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. We often read about concubines in the Old Testament. A concubine imagine this was an in-house mistress that had a status less than a wife in some cases a concubine was a sexual slave in a rich man's harem. Notice Belshazzar had multiple simultaneous marriages so he was a polygamist and he had numerous concubines. Let's establish who this Belshazzar was. The second verse reads that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. But in a technical sense, he wasn't. Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather. So Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The reason that's confusing is because the book of Daniel is written in two different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. The entire Old Testament is primarily recorded in ancient Hebrew, except for Daniel. Uh, most of this book is recorded in ancient Hebrew, but remember we said earlier on from Daniel 2, verse 4, through Daniel 7, verse 28, that section was recorded in Aramaic. And chapter 5, we're reading from, is in the middle of that Aramaic section. According to biblical commentators, at that time, the ancient Aramaic language didn't have a word for grandfather or grandson, so someone's male ancestor no matter who that might have been, was called his father. Nebuchadnezzar was the man that built the massive Babylonian empire. We have addressed him much in the previous chapters. He died in 562 B.C. And after his death, there was a succession of Babylonian rulers that succeeded him. One of them was assassinated, his own brother-in-law was responsible for that assassination. Another died in battle. Then a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus ruled Babylonia from 556 B.C. to 539 B.C. Nabonidus wasn't related to Nebuchadnezzar, so he couldn't have a legal right to succeed him. To solve that problem, he married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and that legitimized his seizure of the Babylonian throne. Uh, He was a devoted worshiper of the moon god called Sin, appropriate name, Sin. And he was the son of a high priestess from that moon god cult. During the final decade of his reign, he spent most of his time not in Babylon, but in Tima, uh, located in northern Arabia. And he left the administration of Babylon itself to his son, Belshazzar. So during that time period, Nabonidus and Belshazzar were considered co regents. Both men ruled, co rulers uh, in Babylonia, just from different locations. Uh, Nabonidus from Arabia, and then Belshazzar from Babylon. Now, for some time, biblical critics have argued that this book of Daniel wasn't authentic because according to them there was no historical record of this Belshazzar. According to these critics Belshazzar, this man we're reading about, never existed. But then in 1854 an archaeologist named J.G. Taylor found four cylinders that contained writing on them. He found them buried in the foundation of a ziggurat at Ur. Those cylinders were from Nabonidus, so are now known as the Nabonidus cylinders. One more Nabonidus cylinder was found in another location in 1881. So altogether there are five of them. The reason those archaeological finds are important is because one of those cylinders mentions Nabonidus had a son. Mentions his son's name as Belshazzar. It reads that Belshazzar is actually his oldest son. So now we have undeniable irrefutable historical evidence that this Belshazzar did exist. I find that humorous. Someone said each time an archaeologist turns over a spade full of dirt another biblical critic is buried. (laughs) It's true. In the beginning of chapter 5, in verse 1, we just read, Belshazzar was just 36, and he was a decadent, idolatrous, immoral man that wasn't fit to rule an empire. During the end of Nabonidus and Belshazzar's co-rule, the Media-Persian Empire, under the command of Cyrus, invaded the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus and his troops met them at the Tigris River north of Babylon. The Medes and Persians defeated Nabonidus. He was ultimately captured and then exiled to a province near Persia where he died. As a result of that action, the Media persian armies then made significant advances into the empire and besieged Babylon itself. Besieged mean these troops surrounded Babylon now Belshazzar understood that this had happened he understood that the media Persian empires were positioned completely around Babylon but he didn't consider that a serious threat he should have he didn't though because of how fortified Babylon was remember from the first lesson we said that Babylon was rectangular in shape. In circumference, the Babylonian wall was 11 miles around, and that wall was altogether 85 feet in thickness. 85 feet because it was a double wall. The outer wall consisted of solid rock and was 25 feet in thickness. The inner wall consisted of solid rock and was 23 feet in thickness. And then there was a space between them 37 feet thick filled with solid rubble. Some sources I have read said those walls were 350 feet in height. That's hard to imagine. That's walls 35 stories in height. There were watchtowers each 65 feet apart throughout the length of the wall. That's almost 900 watchtowers. So Babylon was considered impregnable. Babylon also had a continuous water source because the Euphrates River ran through it and in addition, the authorities there had stored up enough food and enough provisions to last all of the inhabitants a number of years. So Belshazzar is confident. He is overconfident. He's not concerned about the media Persian armies. So he decided to put together a feast. Some of the dinnerware used at this feast were utensils, that had been stolen from the Jerusalem temple. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's armies had much earlier invaded Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's armies invaded Jerusalem in three phases. In 605 BC, he arrested some of Jerusalem's finest teenage males and brought them captive to Babylon to raise them and train them to serve in his empire. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were part of that first deportation. Nebuchadnezzar also confiscated some, some of the sacred vessels from the Jerusalem temple at that time. Then in 597 BC, there's another invasion. Nebuchadnezzar returned and completely emptied the temple of its utensils and valuables. In 586 BC, a third invasion, Nebuchadnezzar returned to Jerusalem and devastated it, including the total destruction of Jerusalem the Jerusalem temple itself. Nebuchadnezzar had brought those temple items, those sacred vessels, to Babylon, and he had put them in the temple of his gods. That, though, was long before he converted to the Jewish religion, before his death. So he supervised those three Jerusalem invasions as an unconverted Babylonian pagan. And it seems that those sacred gold and silver temple vessels He had brought from Jerusalem, had been left stored and undisturbed until Belshazzar had this feast, and he requested them. Verse 3 And they brought, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Verse 4 They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver bronze and iron, wood and stone. This wasn't a good situation. Belshazzar and his guests used those same sacred temple vessels that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had stolen in order to worship pagan Babylonian deities that constituted, using those things once Uh, sanctified and set apart and dedicated to Jewish worship now are being used to honor Babylonian false deities that constituted an act of desecration and blatant defiance of the true God that was sacrilege and blasphemous there was a massive drunken orgy Belshazzar probably sat on a raised platform above the people archaeologists have discovered from the time of Belshazzar ruins from a large room. That room measured 55 feet in width, one hundred and 169 feet in length. It had plastered walls and could have easily been the actual room where this feast was held. The party was raging. I mean, it was in full bore, you know, going on. And then something happened something happened that arrested the immediate attention of all the people in that banquet room. All of a sudden, magicians dropped instruments. Waiters dropped food trays. People dancing froze. Cups of wine fell from fingers and spilled onto the floor. Guests were terrified. And all the noise in an instant turned to absolute silence because people were creeped out. Verse 5. In the same hour, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. All of a sudden, in the middle of this raging party, there were fingers from a human hand. Not the wrist, not the forearm, not even the entire hand itself, but just someone's fingers emerged out of nothing and started writing on the wall the wall was plastered so it was a smooth surface and the writing itself would have been large and legible it was opposite the lampstand according to verse 5 meaning the wall was illuminated so all the people could see it from themselves this was divine graffiti this was a game changer verse 6 Then the king's, meaning Belshazzar's countenance, changed, meaning his face turned white as a sheet, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Now some believe this writing uh, happened on the wall just above Belshazzar's head. It's possible, but we can't know that. We do know Belshazzar watched this hand write this sentence on the wall, and it totally freaked him out, and it would any of us. He was so terrified, his hip joints gave out, his knees knocked together, and he couldn't stand. Verse 7, the king cried aloud, he's desperate, to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar called together all his counselors and wise men that he thought could interpret this handwriting on the wall. And to the one that could, he promised riches, and a serious promotion to become third in command in all the Babylonian empire. Verse 8. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Once again, these Babylonian counselors and wise men, just as happened under Nebuchadnezzar, once more time these men were completely useless. None of them had a clue as to what this writing meant. Verse 9 Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. No members from the Babylonian Brain Trust could interpret this handwriting on the wall. So Belshazzar was more than frustrated. His face was distorted, and he was horrified, not knowing what to do. He understood this was a miraculous act. And he understood that this must have some serious significance and meaning for him. And he was upset that he was unable to determine that meaning. This morning we're stopping at verse 9. I want us to focus on verse 5. Verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. There are a number of common English phrases we use in normal conversation that originated in scripture. Especially those that originated in the older edition of the King James translation. Translation. I have listed some of those phrases on the note sheet. Notice them. Bite the dust. Blind leading the blind. I've used that much. mostly about politicians Uh, by the skin of your teeth broken heart a broken heart originated Psalm 34 verse 18 can a leopard change its spots cast the first stone notice there's a reference for each one of these drop in a bucket eat drink and be merry eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth fall from grace fly in the ointment for everything there is a season forbidden fruit go the extra mile go the extra mile live by the sword die by the sword good Samaritan the love of money is the root of all evil nothing but skin and bones that has never been said about me nothing but skin and bones the powers that be Put words in one's mouth. Rise and shine. My dad used to tell us that to get us up in the morning. It didn't work. The root of the matter. Scapegoat. Scapegoat. See eye to eye. Straight and narrow. Signs of the times. There's nothing new under the sun. Twinkling of an eye. Wash your hands of the matter. Weighed in the ballast, wits in, wolves and sheep's clothing. And there are more of these. And then this one found here in verse 5 is the handwriting on the wall. Most of us have heard that phrase or used that phrase ourselves. That phrase is considered an idiom. And an idiom is a phrase that contains a figurative, non-literal meaning this idiom, this handwriting on the wall means that something bad and unfortunate is about to happen it means something disastrous and potentially devastating is about to happen in this case the original historical miraculous handwriting on the wall prophesied the complete demise of the Babylonian Empire that original handwritten message on the wall foretold divine judgment on Babylonia. It communicated to Belshazzar and his guests that the Media Persian Empire would conquer the Babylonian Empire. It read that Belshazzar was finished. Next time we will see specifically how that happened. It's very interesting. Don't miss it. The big idea from this passage is this that God's patience has limitations. God's patience has limitations. For some time, God had tolerated Belshazzar's idolatrous sin and blasphemous actions. God had exercised his patience and he had extended Belshazzar enough time to repent. Remember, don't forget, Belshazzar's grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar had to have known about his grandfather's conversion from idolatrous religion to serve the one true God. He had to have known that. But Belshazzar continued in his paganness and his sin until God announced to him, Belshazzar, we're done. We're done here. And God terminated Belshazzar's reign and caused the end of the great Babylonian empire itself. Because his patience has limitations. Patience is one of God's attributes as God. Attributes are characteristics. Attributes are those things that characterize God. Attributes are those things that make God, God. So patience is something that is true about God. Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering, meaning the Lord is patient, and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering. Long-suffering is patience and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger. Meaning the Lord is patient and great in mercy. Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger meaning the Lord is patient and great in power there are numerous historical examples of God's extended patience one of them is found in the Genesis flood I'm curious who in this room uh, has been to the Ark encounter in Williamstown Kentucky has anyone you have All right. anyone else I know second service a number of people have Um, they tell me it's phenomenal that's what you understand too Um, It's on our bucket list. Our bucket list is so long I'm never gonna die. Um, (laughs) That enormous structure is 510 feet in length, 85 feet in width, and 51 feet in height. The construction crews that built that ark consisted of Amish, Amish master builders. And altogether, there were more than 1,000 skilled craftsmen that contributed to that project. And that's, uh, that's some of the inside of the ark. From childhood, I had been told, and those of us that are second and third generation Christians, probably all of us were told, I was under the distinct impression that the time required to actually construct the ark was 120 years. And that number is taken from Genesis 6 and verse 3, where it reads, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Meaning there's an end point to his patience. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. But that 120 number seems to be the countdown to the flood from the moment God made that determination, and not the actual time Noah spent on constructing the ark according to Genesis 6 the violence on the earth had reached an intense point a point that exhausted God's patience God had had enough man had so frustrated him he decided to literally drown the human population but he found an exception there was a man named Noah Noah was a good man and so God decided to spare Noah he spared Noah and Mrs. Noah and Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their respective mates. So God spared a total of eight people. Eight. But because there was enough room in the ark to accommodate more people, God could have spared more people if more of them would have repented. There are two reasons we can confirm that those antediluvian people, antediluvian means pre-flood people, two reasons we can confirm that those antediluvian people had significant opportunities to repent and get on board that massive barge. One, from the actual construction project itself. Noah's building project was out in the open so people could see it being constructed. Nothing else like it existed, so it was a public attraction. I'm sure it attracted thousands and thousands. And I'm sure Noah was frustrating answering questions. Second, from Noah himself. From Noah himself. In 2 Peter verse 2, verse 5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Noah became the first evangelist. The Greek word translated as preacher meant a herald, a public crier, someone who announced According to Jewish tradition, this is tradition, Noah said to the people this, Be ye turned from your evil ways and works, lest the waters of the flood come upon you, and cut off the seed of the children of men. That's extra biblical tradition, but if there's some truth in that tradition, then Noah gave people both a warning and a means of salvation. He said to them, there's going to be a massive flood, but I'm building this boat, and you can come aboard. I just read an interesting article from the organization Answers in Genesis, and that is the organization that constructed this ark. The article was entitled, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? The article is complicated. I'm not going to repeat all of its content, because it is some complicated But the conclusion and answer to that question wasn't the traditional 120 number, but that the more accurate range was that Noah spent from 55 to 75 years on that project. 55 to 75 years. 75 years max on building this boat. Still, 75 years is a substantial amount of patience most of us struggle being patient. Just sitting at a stoplight exasperates us. It does me. Are you aware the average person spends a total of four to six months of his lifetime at stoplights? People, that's just wrong. That's wrong. God is more patient than we are though. And His patience endured the better part of a century as Noah put that gigantic floating barge together meaning that throughout that entire time period there were ample opportunities for people to see the building project ask questions get answers and hear Noah's message there was more than enough time to repent and be rescued from that global deluge but other than those eight people we just mentioned no one else took advantage of that chance In the same sense, God exercised incredible patience toward Babylonia for decades. But then his patience was exhausted. God said enough is enough. God couldn't continue to tolerate that idolatrous, immoral Babylonian society. Notice the truism. God sometimes puts limitations on one attribute so he can exercise another attribute. God sometimes places limitations on one attribute so he can then exercise another attribute. In Belshazzar's case, he limited his patience so he could exercise his justice. He limited his patience, he had been so patient. Limited though, there was a a stopping point so he could exercise justice and judge that civilization. Notice some verses we read earlier but didn't finish. Numbers 14 verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering, patient, and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But, notice, but he by no means clears the guilty. Meaning God does punish wrongdoing and wrongdoers, and that's justice. Numbers 1 verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. He's patient and great in power. Notice, and will not at all acquit the wicked. To acquit means to free someone from a criminal charge through a not guilty verdict. The wicked are guilty though, so God doesn't acquit them. He holds them accountable for their crimes. That's justice. In the case of Belshazzar in ancient Babylon, God had to limit his attribute called patience so he could activate and exercise his attribute called justice. And justice required him to judge that idolatrous culture as we're going to see next time. God's patience just isn't just open-ended. There isn't just open-ended. There's a definite drop-dead date on his patience. That example from Noah was much earlier on. So one final example is his patience toward the unsaved, now in the end times. Notice 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 3. 2 Peter 3. Knowing that this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days. Simon Peter predicted there would be scoffers in these end times before Jesus returns. A scoffer speaks about someone or something in a scornful, derisive, and contemptuous matter these scoffers walking according to their own desires or lust verse 4 and saying here comes the scoffing from these end time scoffers where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep meaning since our ancestors died all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation no that's not true Verse 5, For this they, these scoffers, willingly forget. These scoffers deliberately choose to ignore historical facts. Willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6, By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So the argument some scoffers use is that nothing much has changed since creation it's been the same that's not so as Simon Peter goes on to remind them that there was a global catastrophic Genesis flood and that flood wasn't the same old same old That wasn't just another day at the office that was a huge interruption on earth move down to verse 8 but beloved do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day I heard about a little boy that uh, had read this verse. Um, He understood the essence of this verse, and so this little boy and God were having a conversation. And this little guy said, God, is it true that to you one minute is the same as a thousand years, and a thousand years is the same as one minute? And God said, yes, that's true. This little guy said, okay, God, then I imagine to you one penny is the same as one million dollars, and one million dollars is the same as one penny. And God said, yes, that's correct. To me, one penny is the same as one million dollars. This little guy thought for a moment and then said, then God, can I have a penny? (laughs) And God said, sure. Wait just a minute. Do you notice the reaction time? There was. We we gotta do better than that, okay? God understands time different from how we understand time. God Himself is timeless, God is eternal. So God doesn't count time as we count time. Before Jesus left this earth, He promised He would return. He mentioned that return Himself 21 times in the Gospels. The Gospels meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One-fifth of all Scripture is prophetical, and one-third of that one-fifth references Jesus' return. There are in Scripture 333 specific prophecies made about Jesus. 109 of them were fulfilled at His first coming, and 224 are left to be fulfilled at His second coming. There are 46 Old Testament prophets. Ten of them mention things that concern Jesus' first coming. Thirty-six of them mention things that concern His second coming. There are a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages that reference Jesus' second coming. There are 330 New Testament verses that reference Jesus' second coming. That means one out of each 25 New Testament verses mention some part of Jesus' second coming. And notice, each time Jesus' first coming is mentioned in Scripture, Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times. In the New Testament, Christians are encouraged to be prepared for Jesus' return some 50 times. And then there are evangelical pastors that completely ignore this subject. Putting all these statistics together, it means if we cannot believe that Jesus is returning to this earth a second time as he promised, if we can't accept that, then we cannot hold to the opinion that he ever came to this earth a first time. And that's unthinkable. But there are scoffers that are convinced that Jesus' return is just a figment of our imagination. So in verse 8, Simon Peter answers the question. If all this is scheduled to happen, as Jesus prophesied, then where has Jesus been? How come he's not here? That's the question these scoffers want answered. If Jesus is supposed to return, then where is he? In verse 8, Peter tells these scoffers that From a human perspective, it seems as though it's been a long time. But because God is outside time, from his perspective, it's been no time at all. Then in verse 9, God gives him the reason, Peter gives him the reason God, and in particular God's son Jesus, has waited all these centuries. He has waited to return. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. Now, I've met slackers. There's an entire generation of them called millennials. (laughs) My son's the exception. Okay. (laughs) Had to say that. Um, God isn't some slacker. Meaning God isn't delinquent about fulfilling His promises. Remember something. God might seem slow, but God is never late but is long-suffering, long-suffering is from the normal Greek word, translated as patience. God is patient toward us. Notice, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That phrase, God is not willing that any should perish, doesn't mean, don't miss this, doesn't mean that God won't permit people to perish. It doesn't teach that in the end, God saves all people so that no one perishes in hell. That is a false doctrine called universalism. Universalism is the teaching that God ultimately saves all people. In the 90s, Rob Bell was a huge name in evangelicalism. He was one of the first hipster pastors, something I have never had an ambition to be. He authored a book called Love Wins. Love Wins. He concluded that in the end, God, God's love wins out and all people are saved. That's universalism. And that's not sound doctrine. That is false teaching. God is not willing that any should perish means, means that God doesn't desire that anyone should perish. According to Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14, read that text sometime. God understands that most people, not some people, most people aren't going to repent and aren't going to receive His Son, Jesus. But He desires them to. He wants, wishes, that all people would. And Jesus is being patient. And He is waiting to return in order to give more opportunities to more people to receive salvation. The reason God's Son, Jesus, hasn't returned some 20 centuries after he promised he would return it's not because he's loitering, not because he's hanging out and wasting time in heaven, but because he's waiting for more people to receive salvation. God has exercised extreme patience waiting for all of those that would be saved and that number is probably in the billions God knows, God understands because God is sovereign God is also omniscient. God knows who that last someone is that would receive salvation before his return. And that person could be in this room this morning. And once that someone has experienced salvation, God's salvific patience expires. There's no more waiting. No more intentional, well-intended procrastinating. Jesus returns. Jesus returns, he rescues those on the earth that are saved, brings them to heaven and then brings intense judgment to the earth in the form of the tribulation period and it gets, continues to get worse after that. That happens because as we just said, God sometimes limits one attribute, in this case patience in order to exercise another attribute, in this case justice. Some people are foolish and presume on God's patience, that is a serious mistake. Because there is an eventual limit on divine patience. God's patience has a shelf life, people. And the problem is, we don't know the expiration date. That's the reason 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 reads, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now. Now is the day of salvation. If you're not 100% Certain. If you aren't convinced without a doubt or hesitation or question, if you're not sure that Christ is in you, that you are a Christian, then I challenge you, I beg you, decide for Jesus today. Don't wait, do it now. Satan is the great deceiver. It is said, Satan once called on some of his demons, he wanted to send them to earth. Uh, to assist people in the ruination of their souls he asked for volunteers one demonic creature came forward and said send me send me Satan said okay so if I send you what will you tell people this demon responded I will tell them that there is no heaven Satan countered no that's not going to work they won't believe that People are intuitive enough to realize that there must be something better than this sometimes miserable existence on this earth. So no, you can't go. Then another demon came forward and he seemed darker and fouler than the first. He said, send me, send me, Satan. Satan said, okay, so if I send you, what will you tell people? He said, I will tell them that hell doesn't exist. Satan stared at him and said, you're a fool. No, no. People aren't going to believe that. Actions have consequences. There's too much evilness to go unpunished. So no, you can't go. One final demon came forward and said, Send me, send me. Satan said, Okay. So if I send you, what will you tell people? This emissary from hell said, Satan, I will tell them that Jesus Christ is real. That Jesus died for their sins. He was buried and then resurrected from the dead. I will tell them he is the Savior. I will tell them that to receive Jesus is to receive salvation. And all this salvation includes meaning forgiveness and a guarantee of heaven. And I will encourage them to do that. Satan is listening to all of this and he's getting upset and he protested. No, 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 you cannot do that. That's counterproductive. That's what we don't want. We want to discourage people from becoming Christians. This demon interrupted him, said, Satan, wait, wait, I'm not finished. I will tell them to receive Jesus, but I will tell them there's no rush. There's plenty of time. Satan said, that's it. That's it. You can go. And that is still Satan's favorite technique. Would you bow your heads? if you're here this morning and you aren't certain of salvation you aren't certain that Jesus is a resident inside you and that you have forgiveness from all sin you can be you can give your life to him if you would see me after the service somehow grab me or get to me and I'll set up an appointment as soon as possible even today and you can make that decision for yourself Father, please, we're going to dismiss all the candidates for baptism right now. Every candidate for baptism is free to slip out as we pray. But Father, I pray that you will bless this time of baptism. I pray it will be an incredible time of celebration and encouragement for everyone who is here. We commit this time to you, and I pray and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.